We are traveling through the book of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, this letter to the Philippians. Uh, we are in chapter 4. Uh, over the last few months online, we have been teaching uh, through this, this book, this letter, uh, and now we're beginning to close it down in the final chapter here. In the black Bibles around the room, it's on page 923. If you've got your Bible, I hope you do open up to Philippians. It's in your New Testament right after Paul's letter to the Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. If you go to Colossians, you've gone one uh, letter too far. Paul here is, just by way of orientation, if you're just kind of catching up with us or you're visiting with us this morning, what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's writing to a 10-year-old church that he started on his second missionary journey. So he planted this church about 10 years previous to writing to them, and the Philippians are doing very, very well. They're doing well as a church. They live in a staunchly nationalistic Roman colony that is populated largely with retired Roman soldiers. So for Christians, life in Philippi approximately 20 years after Jesus' resurrection, it did not afford them security and it did not afford them popularity. They were a marginalized band of disciples opposed, they were mocked, but they were tolerated. The Romans put up with them, but their toleration, it would soon change in the coming decade with un, under the emperors Nero and Domitian as these coming persecutions uh, would uh, find themselves uh, breaking out against the, the, the various Christians in the known world. Paul writes to the Philippians here with, with the affection of a really good and present father. He prays for the Philippians, he encourages them, he praises them, and he instructs this young band of disciples. And they have ears to hear a letter from their spiritual dad. They want to hear from them, from him. They are eager to hear from them. And he is writing to them from prison. He's writing to them in chains. And what Paul is doing in Philippians chapter 4 is he's winding this letter down with a, a final series of exhortations. And every one of these exhortations in, uh, in Philippians 4, they come in rapid fire succession. But there's a foundation at the beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4. Paul says this, he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, you can sense his, his eagerness for them. He says this, Stand firm, thus, in the Lord. In light of everything that I've just said to you, stand firm in the Lord. For a foundation to be effective, it has to be sturdy and fixed, unlikely to move. For a foundation to be effective, it's, it, it, it cannot move. Why? Because if the foundation gives way or the foundation moves, anything and everything that is built on top of it and that is resting on it also moves. So any good foundation, builders in the room, you know this, any good foundation can bear an extraordinary amount of weight and an extraordinary amount of pressure as well. But if that foundation gives way, the entire structure begins to give way as well. At the end of uh, Jesus' famous sermon, uh, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's an extraordinary body of teaching. You can find it in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and also in Luke chapter 6. At the end of this sermon, Jesus closes with this. I'm reading out of Luke chapter 6. It'll be up on the screen as well. 
Listen to how he starts, or how he, how he the, the first sentence here of his ending. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? So why are you calling me master? Why are you asserting with your mouth that I have authority, but you don't do what I tell you? With your lips, you're with me, but with your life, you have nothing to do with me. Then he goes on to say, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, lives obediently to them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream or the river broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them, my words, my teaching is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Paul has his Lord's teaching in his ears, and he, this is likely informing his background. He knows that to stand firm in the Lord Jesus Christ is to stand firm on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to decide. It's to make a decision with your will. To build the whole of your life on the sturdy and fixed foundation of Jesus Christ. And we know through his body of teaching, through the scriptures, through God's word, that Jesus, through his work, he has forgiven and cleared, absorbed our guilt. And not just that, but his body of teaching applied to our lives. What does it do? It continues to transform us. The gospel, you've heard me say this, the gospel is not just the way into the family of God, but the good news of Jesus Christ is the way that we carry on in the family of God. We keep it in the fore, the forefront of our minds. Now, for many of us in the room, myself included at times, Jesus isn't the overall foundation of your life. Something else occupies his seat. Something else masters you. Maybe for some of us, Jesus Christ is more of a means to an end than the end himself. He's a way to get you past the guilt of your past, but you don't really desire him. You just desire to be free from the weight of your past. When he calls you and I to deny ourselves and to follow him, He's not only calling us to just rearrange the various file folders of our life and just maybe bump him up a notch or two. What he's actually doing is calling us to an awareness that he is the entire operating system that all of the file folders find themselves within. Without him, our lives do not run. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Colossians 1, 16 through 20. For by him, by Jesus, all things, how many things? All things were created. Where? In heaven and on earth. That's speaking of all creation. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, Jesus, and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, in Jesus Christ, all things hold together. He is the head of his body, that is the church. And he is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. He was the first human, the God-man, to be resurrected. That in everything, he might be what? Preeminent, at the forefront. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The reality is, for you and I, that if you have a pulse, you face problems. 
for those of us who have a pulse, we face problems. And the Christian life is especially hard. Life, as you know, it will try to tempt you to go on without Jesus Christ. A pandemic will convince you another episode of that, show, of that show will cure the ache in your guts for escape and relief. A brutal hardship can be the final blow to your faith, unraveling your confidence that Jesus Christ will indeed hold you fast, like we just sang. The loss or the absence of a relationship will taunt and try to convince you that you really are alone. Hurt from your church, current, here, or former, will haunt you, destabilizing your willingness to engage those around you and to truly be known. Church communities are prone to division and infighting. There's more reasons that I can get into for that at the moment, but think about this. This is why Paul has been in Philippians encouraging and teaching them just how important partnered unity is to their well-being and their flourishing, their survival. He's referred to partnership directly or indirectly in at least nine ways thus far in Philippians. If you want to just go on a tour, I'm just going to read to you uh, the, the nine of them very quick. In, in Philippians 1, verse 5, he's thanking God. He's praying for the Philippian church, and he says, I thank you from your partnership and for your partnership. I thank God for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then later in verse 7, still praying, he says, you're partakers with me of grace. And he's grateful for that, that they're partnered with him uh, in, the, uh, in receiving the unmerited favor of God. He prays in verses uh, 1, 14 through 19, that, that he would be delivered through their prayers. He's grateful that they're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel in verse 27 of chapter 1. Chapter 1. He's thankful that Timothy, uh, a son to him in the faith, has served with him in the gospel. And in chapter 2.22, at 2.25, he calls out a man named Epaphroditus and calls Epaphroditus his brother, his fellow worker, and his fellow, fellow soldier for the sake of the gospel. In, in chapter 3.17, he asks the Philippians to join in imitating him. Partner with me, imitate my way of life. And here in uh, chapter 4, verse 3, he mentions two women who are uh, in major conflict. And he, he, he remembers how they have labored side by side with him for the faith. And then as he closes the letter in verse 14 of chapter 4, uh, he again is so grateful to them for their partnership in giving and receiving and supporting him financially. So as Paul concludes his, uh, his letter here, he calls on two women. And he calls on these ladies by name. Imagine you are known in the biblical record for your inability to get along. He calls them to reconcile with one another. Apparently, their unwillingness to reconcile, to agree in the Lord, it's hurting, it's harming the unity of the entire church. So verses 2 and 3, I entreat Euodia. To entreat means to call out strongly, to call, hey, hey, hey. He's calling Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. 
Yes, I ask you also, true companion. The Greek here is Sisgus. This could be a person's name. He's asking a person as an individual, or he could be just, uh, it means true yoke fellow. He could be calling the entire church to come around them with this phrase, true, true companion. I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel for the sake of the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. We are one family under God, and he is calling these women to work out their differences. Division in a church is no small thing. Division in our relationships will tempt us to dishonor Jesus Christ. In the same way that not standing, uh, that, that not standing firm, that life will tempt us to abandon Christ, division will tempt us to dishonor him. Our happy little church here, all of life, is not immune to a split. It's not immune to division. It's possible that you have experienced hurt here, either from me or from someone in our fellowship. Maybe you have needs that have gone unmet, unannounced, undeclared, or you feel on the margins because of this. Maybe you're holding others responsible. Perhaps some of this is, is still on you because you've not made it known to the people who have caused you offense in a godly way. So you're harboring these things deep within. Paul knew of this conflict and he entreated these women to agree in the Lord. The pillar commentary on the New Testament, it says this, Paul's reference to their names, to actually calling them out, indicates that they were well-known members of the church who were causing a serious division by their personal animosity. It had gotten toxic between them. And now people are taking up sides. What else do we know about these gals? Not much, uh, but we can do, deduce a few things from the biblical record. Um, number one, these ladies, they labored right alongside Paul, and they were at one time clearly focused on making the gospel known. The first Christian named in the Philippian church was a woman named Lydia. So in Acts chapter 16, you'll find the story of how the Philippian church got planted, got started initially. And Paul and Silas, they, they came into this Roman colony of Philippi, and they were looking for people of peace. They were looking for people who were open to the good news of Jesus Christ. And they heard that a group of women would often go down to the river to pray. And so he and Silas and those who were with him decided to go down by this river and to see if they could engage and find a person of peace down by the river. And they found this group of women who were praying there. And they, 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 they told the, the story of Jesus Christ, the good news of his reality. And Acts 16, Luke records that, that God opened Lydia's heart to believe the gospel, and she became a believer. And it's likely, we don't know for certain, but it's likely that either or both Yodia and Sintik were a part of this group of women. Number two, their names were written in the book of life. Did you notice that at the end in, in verse three in Philippians four? Along with my other, the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. This means these women were followers of Jesus Christ. They had lost focus on him as the ultimate 
But they were followers. They were apprentices to him. They were disciples of Jesus. But this disagreement was fracturing their unity, and it was threatening the overall unity of this young band of disciples. If the church, Paul knows this, and we know this today, if the church becomes overwhelmed and divided by unresolved conflict, the church's whole focus and mission is at stake. Consider this. A factor that often keeps godly people divided is that we want to win the argument more than we want to honor the name of Jesus Christ. We get so focused on winning our fight that we lose the very people in front of us. Married couples, (laughs) you know this at times, you're following each other around the house trying to get your points out. Nobody else does that. Like, this is often how we'll go about arguments. We'll lose our focus. We'll get so tuned into the moment and kind of winning the battle that we just begin to fight dirty, period. We lose our focus. Is that how you engage in conflicts? Are you able to be wrong? Are you able to lose an argument for the sake of winning a person in front of you? Are you? Will you? Defining the goal in front of us, defining the targets, the the target in front of us, that determines our strategy. By determining our target, that determines our strategy. And so when Jesus Christ, when his glory and when his honor, it outshines the argument, when honoring him becomes the central and most important ambition for you and I in a conflict, it changes how we engage in the conflict. Does it not? Sometimes we lock horns and we just get stuck and we need mediation. We need help. We need somebody to come in and to intervene and to, and to help us. The pillar commentary on the New Testament, it says this also. When one's attitude of mind is in the Lord, union with the Lord informs and inspires the attitude. Paul wants these two women to have the right attitude toward one another by focusing their life in union with the Lord. When their common bond in the Lord becomes central, their attitude toward one another will be the same as Jesus Christ expressed on the way to the cross. They will not claim their rights for their own advantage in order to keep power in the moment, but they will take the form of a servant and they will humble themselves before one another. This is a true principle even if only one party knows or wants to honor the Lord while the other party doesn't and still continues to fight dirty. This principle still holds true, and this is still what the Lord calls you, believer, you, apprentice, you, disciple, too. Maybe these ladies were willing, but they were just stuck. They were in too deep, and they didn't know how to get out. When stuck in conflict and unable to free ourselves, what do we need? We need a mediator. We need someone who can come in and guide us out. I get stuck all the time as your pastor. Sometimes I lock horns with people. Sometimes people lock horns with me. There's all kinds of times when I just don't know what to do, like in a global pandemic. When our nation is divided on racial issues, we live in a a state that is over 94% Caucasian. 
How do we address these things? How do we think about these things? With a long-standing history of racism in our own community, the Aryan nations, if you've forgotten, there's so many times that we just don't know what to do. We need mediators. We need counselors. We need people to come and to guide us, not just to get us out of a bind, but to get and to keep the purposes of Jesus at the forefront of our mind. We don't just need to get out of a bind all of the time. We need perspective much of the time. One of Jesus' enduring qualities was his willingness to listen and to hear those who were in front of him. If you notice that in the record of the Gospels, one of his enduring qualities was his willingness to just open up space for people. He would often ask them, what do you want me to do for you? And then he would quiet himself. The one who has all authority, all knowledge, who can fix the problem in a moment, either through counsel or miraculous healing, would just quiet himself and listen. What do you want me to do for you? To genuinely feel heard is an amazing gift, is it not? Especially when we feel heard by those who are in positions of power. I've gone through a difficult time recently, and on several different occasions, I've had to have conversations with close, with close friends where difficult truth on my end would be revealed. These conversations, they made me feel vulnerable. Uh, I, I remember a dominating emotion was insecurity. And what a gift in these conversations it was to be listened to and to be cared for in the moment. And every single one of these conversations went exceedingly well, where my friends just opened up space to let me speak. And then as I did, they said, okay, I didn't realize that. And they just created space for me to be human, to be weak, to be vulnerable, to not have all the answers, to not be strong in the moment. And what this did was it endeared me all the more to them as I was heard by them. And I suspect in some ways it endeared them to me as I was able to bring my vulnerabilities to them. That's possible. So in conflict or in moments of vulnerability, do you cut off the people who are speaking in front of you? Do you finish their sentences because you know them so well, you know what they're going to say? Do you listen for ways to craft your rebuttal? Do you talk too much and think you know far more than you actually do? You have two ears and one mouth. Think about that ratio. Listening, I'll finish it for you. Listening twice as much as we're speaking. This is a skill socially that when employed does great service to our relationships. Husbands and wives, take this to heart. Shut your mouth and listen to your spouse. Consider it. Ask questions for clarity without weaponizing them against the person in front of you. Let the other person just speak. Let them work it out. Let them make mistakes. Stop looking for them to step into a trap so that you can catch them and win the argument rather than the person. Be very cautious about weaponizing your words and your tone as they speak before you. Get your feet walking in their shoes for a moment. That's empathy. Majority culture folks. This is a very broad way of saying white people. 
going to address some of the, the, the issues in our nation right now. So what I don't want you to do is close down on me because I don't mean to be confrontational and I don't mean to be controversial. I, I mean to just ask for a hearing. Take this to heart. We are in a cultural moment that is complex, very complex. Can we just agree on that? That the answer isn't just, well, they should or, well, we should or, well, people should. The, answer, the answers before us are complex, and they're rooted in centuries, centuries, three at minimum in the United States alone, centuries of American and global history that is ripe with implications. Our nation is a mess right now. Division is easy. Blame is easy easy. Pride is easy. These are easy postures and actions to just run into for us. And consider this, such are the weapons of Satan himself. Revelation 12.10 says that he accuses the brothers and sisters, those who are Christians, before the Lord day and night. He blames blames, blames, blames. Many of you in the room feel powerless to know what to do. I was just having a conversation with a friend last week who just expressed, I want to do something, but she didn't know what to do. But there's this, this inclination in us to want to give ourselves to solution rather than continue to divide. I'm going to offer two pieces of counsel that I would, that I would ask for you to consider seriously. The first piece of counsel is this. Pause. Pause. Pause your arguments and take on a position, an identity of listener and learner. Just pause. What that means is don't move into the position of teacher and debater just yet. Just pause. Seek to learn from multiple people of color who are talking about what it is like to be black, specifically in the United States of America. And ask questions for clarity without offering your perspective. I'm not saying you can't offer your perspective. I'm just saying, what does it look like to, to, to listen, to just posture yourselves to listen and to try to hear it? I'll say it a different way that's far more blunt. Close down your mouth and open up your ears and your hearts and attempt to walk just a mile in a minority culture person's shoes. Now, learning from those who have a Christocentric perspective or a Christ-centered perspective is especially helpful here because there is so much out there that is just garbage that is being proposed as the solution. <clears throat> critical theory is, is something, critical race theory or critical whatever it might be, sexual theory, is, is a theory that says if the people with the power will just give up the power to the people who are oppressed, then we can all be okay. Critical theory is not a solution. It's anti-gospel. It's a poor gospel. What we need is the Lord Jesus Christ to move into the spaces where we are sinning against one another and shutting one another down and dividing against one another and to allow him time and space to move in to bring healing and to bring justice forward. <clears throat> That's what we need. What we have is a human sin 
problem working its way out in all spheres of not just American society, but global society. So <clears throat> what I'm going to do is I'm going to just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lay a few names before you this morning and some of their works that if you would like to go and search and to learn on your own, their names will be on the screen. Grab your phone and just take a screenshot and go and find some of this stuff yourself. You can simply Google their names and some of the keywords after their names on the screen and you can find voices that I trust personally that have a Christocentric perspective. Okay, Martin Luther King is one of them. Eric Mason is a pastor in Philadelphia. Uh, he is a, a, a ferocious preacher. He's written a book called Woke Church. Don't let the slang of woke just stop you in your tracks right there. I don't think it's a super helpful word in our culture here because most of us just put up walls around that kind of terminology. But his theological perspective is A++. A man named Thabiti Anyabwile. He pastors in Washington, D.C. He's written helpful Christocentric work on reparations. If you're wondering what that all looks like from a Christian perspective, not saying that you have to agree with any of this, just what does it look like to open your mind and your hearts to these things? A man named Charlie Dates, his sermons, Propaganda and Lecrae, two, uh, two music artists, uh, both rappers or spoken word artists who are very engaged in cultural issues. I love these men. A man named Jamar Tisby, he has a free on Amazon series called The Color of Compromise, which looks at how race and the church have been uh, racial issues, racism and the church have been in bed to, together. He also has a podcast called The Witness. And then a man who is not a Christian named Tanasi Coates. Uh, I read a book of his called Between the World and Me. It was really helpful perspective on how black bodies have been uh, have been exploited over the centuries. It's just helpful to kind of get my head into this lane to try to understand. Now, second, here's my second point. Take a screenshot of that. Leave it up on the screen for a minute. If you want to take a screenshot of that, feel free. Here's my second point. So the first, the first point is just to pause and to listen. My second point is this. Please become aware of and resistant to binary thinking. Either or thinking. There is so much room for both and. I want to give you a few examples. To believe that people in our country have suffered injustice at the hands of police is not supposing that we need to believe that police in our judicial system is bad and all bad. We don't have to just gravitate to one side and take sides in this moment. We can look with an open mind at what has occurred or to champion protests in the streets is to endorse the injustice of rioting and looting. Rioting and looting are evil. It's injustice. Or to believe that prejudice still exists in our country's fallen systems created by fallen people is to throw out the progress that we've made in 55 years since the civil rights movement. Or to think that since people of color are free, that 400 years of slavery and oppression can't possibly still linger. We don't have to believe either or. We can allow both so that we can open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to hear what is being said. This way, this binary way of thinking is very commonplace, and it's rarely a help to working through very complex issues. You know this in your workplace. You know this in your family systems. You know this. You know that binary either-or thinking is not very helpful. Paul could have easily taken sides with Euodia and Syntyche. 
well, Syntec is about 60% right on the issue, and Yodia is only 40% right, so we're going to go ahead and go with Syntec. Imagine, that the dam imagine the damage that that would have done to the Philippian church, but instead, what did Paul do? He called them each to focus not primarily on winning their arguments or airing their grievances, but on considering and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. He called them in his short letter to agree in the Lord, and as they remembered the foundation, how good Jesus has been to them, they would begin to see one another not as opponents, but actually as fellow partakers of the same unmerited favor, grace. As they remember the foundation, how each of their names are written in the book of life, they could recall how Jesus humbled himself to suffer death for their guilt and to secure not just their pardon, but their ongoing transformation. Remember, the gospel is not just the way in, but it's also the way on. And it's from this foundational mindset and heart posture that both Euodia and Syntyche could finally begin to listen to one another and consider reconciliation that is both honest about real grievances while living out a humble willingness to forgive and to repent of offenses where they are due and in love consider one another's well-being above Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Here's where I'll close. The Apostle Paul writes this. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. What did Jesus do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May we stand firm in Christ. May we learn to agree in Christ. And this will also, verse 4 or 5, teach us, to rejoice in Christ and to rejoice in the unity that we have. Father, would you speak to our hearts this morning? Would you overcome objections? Would you meet every single individual in this room exactly where we are, giving us exactly what we need? We know that you are a good Father who calls us to ask, seek, and knock. We, we know that you instruct. We know that you don't turn us away. May we, may we find ourselves lunging at your word for understanding to be your disciples rather than disciples of the pundits on all of the news sources or social media sites. May we pass on your teaching before we pass on theirs. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.